I've been going through a series. Uh, uh, this is a three-part series. This Today is part two. Uh, I started this series in Philemon a little bit before the Sundays in July break. And uh, this series in Philemon began, uh, I kind of gave a little, uh, quite a bit of context on the book and uh, really talked about a lot of people with uh, some funny names, honestly. And speaking as a guy named Han, who got the head Han show on Han Solo all through his youth, uh, I can relate to funny names. Two of those names were Tychicus and Onesimus. And I talked to you about how Tychicus and Onesimus carried the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon on a journey. Uh, these letters were written by Paul in about around A.D. 61, while Paul was in a Roman prison. And he was writing these letters, these precious letters, which were ultimately preserved in the canon of Scripture. And Tychicus and Onesimus carried these down from Rome on a journey to the port city of Ephesus. They dropped off the letter of Ephesus and then continued onward inland for another 120 miles to a small town called Colossae, which was about 120 miles east of Ephesus. Now, Colossae was located in a region called Phrygia. And Phrygia was uh, kind of in the hinterlands of the Roman Empire. And Phrygia was a very hard land, as we mentioned. And in particular, slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. And, and the slavery in that era was really horrific. Uh, it's in many ways, every bit as horrific as the horror and sin of American slavery was. But uh, really, in these hinterlands of the Roman Empire in particular, uh, it, it could be especially harsh. Slaves were treated typically very harshly in Phrygia. They basically had no rights, and they could be executed by their masters even. So this is the area where the letter to Philemon was written, and the Colossian church actually met in the home of a man named Philemon. And Philemon was a wealthy man, and he was known and rep had a reputation for being hospitable. So then, as we talked about last time, Paul launches into the letter. And in the first seven verses of the letter, which we covered last time, he is such a godly example of being courteous, being thankful, being prayerful, and being gracious. Really, all of this behavior is, is gracious behavior. And I noted to you last time that all of this behavior is commanded in Scripture to be courteous, be thankful, be prayerful, and to be gracious. So verses 1 through 7 then sets us up and leads us into today's passage. We're going to be covering verses 8 through 14, and let me ask for the Lord's help. Lord, as we uh, open this text, I just pray you would grant me the words to speak. Let everything I say, I pray, be in accordance with your word and its principles, and let the people be teachable to your word. We're so thankful to you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 8 to 14 here today in Philemon this section begins with the word therefore, and occasionally in the past I've, I've preached and talked about this word therefore. It's a very important word. It, it's a transitional word, and when you're reading the scripture, I would urge you, whenever you see the word therefore, to kind of pause for a moment and, and to sit up and take notice. Everything that went before the therefore kind of leads naturally into the passage that's opened by the word therefore. So we talked about again in verses 1 through 7, Paul is exceedingly gracious as he's writing this letter to Philemon and he's praising Philemon's character. And then this leads naturally with the therefore into Paul's request, which is in verses 8 through 14. And now this request, granting this request, would require some sacrifice. So it's logical then 
to be nice and kind before asking for a favor, if you will. We know this from the Proverbs. Proverbs 16.21 is very clear. The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. There's also Proverbs 25.15. By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. I just love that. So we see how the course of wisdom, Paul is, Paul is enacting the course of wisdom here and being very gracious before he asks Philemon to do something for him. And really, it's really common sense when you think, well, what's the alternative? To be a jerk, right? You're, you're not going to do that. That doesn't make sense in the world or certainly in Christ, in the Christian church. It makes no sense. So as I was processing through this passage, uh, you know, I originally thought to maybe focus on the request itself and the structure of the request. There's not necessarily a ton of imperatives or commands or, or sins even in the text itself. And sometimes that can make it a little bit more challenging to preach. But as I examined this passage, something else started coming through very clearly. And although the gospel is not explicitly recited here in this passage, as you go through these verses 8 through 14, you see the after effects of the gospel everywhere in this passage. Now, when I say gospel, I, I mean the gospel of grace and forgiveness that we need to preach to ourselves every single day. But as we look at this passage, the effects of the gospel are everywhere. And the title of this message is The Transforming Effects of the Gospel. And this is my desire for you. My, my desire is I want the gospel to be on your mind because the gospel is bound together with Jesus Christ. And, and I want Christ to be in your mind. I want your life to be saturated with Jesus Christ. And I want you to see Jesus Christ all through creation and all around you. When you witness a, an act of grace, uh, I want you to praise God. When you witness sin or when you commit sin, I want you to repent of that, but I also want you to be thankful for Jesus Christ, for the cross, where all sin was paid for, for those past, present, and future who believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. When you read the Old Testament, I want you to see how Christ is predicted all over the Old Testament. Uh, go, if you want a, an interesting study, go, go into, look into what the angel of the Lord means in the Old Testament, which is something that I would commend to you as a, as a topic of study. It's fascinating. So that's my desire, is that I want your life to be saturated with the Word of God, with the truth, and with Jesus Christ. So when I see that the transforming effects of the gospel are clear here, let's get into the text, and I'm going to try to show you what I mean. Our first point today is, the gospel makes you bold. Let's read verses 8 through the first half of verse 10. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. You know, this word, this uh, translation, I'm reading from the NASB, have enough confidence in Christ is also can be translated sometimes as I am bold enough in Christ. That's in the ESV version. So this concept of being bold here, it, it means not hesitating, not, not being fearful in the face of a possible rebuff or refusal. So Paul is not hesitant. He is not fearful. 
And indeed, when we're talking about the gospel makes you bold, our first point, Paul is the bold one here. He, he's just pulling out all the stops. He, he's just laying it out there. And indeed, we consider 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, and this such a hope, by the way, refers to the gospel, if we look earlier in 2 Corinthians 3. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. So again, the gospel makes you bold as a Christian. And I pray in particular that we are bold with the gospel, that we can present it boldly to those who need it. So again, I want to recall to your memory that Paul was being very intentionally gracious in verses 1 through 7, and now he is boldly and intentionally making his request, and he's attempting to use persuasion to do so. And let's, let's see how he's doing this. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. So you see, Paul, he, he's an apostle. He, he's, he is one of the leaders of the church, one of the highest leaders of the church. He could certainly order Philemon to do what Paul wants here, but he doesn't do that. And we'll talk to you a little bit more about why that's so helpful that Paul doesn't do that as we continue on later in the points of this message. Continuing on, he says, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. For the sake of his love for Philemon, instead of ordering him, Paul is making an appeal. So remember, Paul has previously demonstrated his love for Philemon in many ways. He, Paul is actually the one who preached Christ to Philemon and was the instrument that God used for Philemon to become saved. So Philemon has, has such a tie to, to Paul. There's an old saying, a person has practically unlimited influence with someone who really likes you. So you can be bolder then in some ways with someone who knows that you really love them as Philemon knows Paul loves him. Let's continue on. Since I am such a person as Paul the aged. And Paul really, at the time of the writing of this letter, he really is quite aged. He's approximately 60, or, uh, 60 years old or, or older, which for that time period was, was quite old. And more than that, Paul, up to this point, had lived a very hard life. He had, he had already been sold out for the gospel. He'd been a missionary. He had suffered all kinds of hardships, as you know, from the various recountings in Scripture. And on top of that, on top of being Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. At the time he's writing this, this letter, these three letters, as I mentioned, he is in prison in Rome for Christ's sake. It's interesting, Paul refers to, Paul has written uh, the majority of the books in the New Testament, and uh, he refers to himself a number of times. This is the only epistle where his very first self-reference to himself is as a prisoner. Most of the time, Paul's first self-reference to himself is as an apostle. But here, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner. And in doing so, he's drawing a parallel with Onesimus, with the, this, this, the runaway slave. He, he's drawing this parallel that Paul as a prisoner is also bound, if you will, as Onesimus the slave has been. He, he's expressing an empathy and, and trying to draw that connection in Philemon's mind. I'm going to quote uh, for you Charles Spurgeon. It should also be on the screen. Who would not grant him his desire when he was wearing a chain for Christ's sake? 
if a letter were to come to you from some beloved minister whom you knew to be lying in a dungeon and likely soon to die, you would be greatly touched if you noticed the traces of the rust of his fetters on the letter. And then he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Again, his child, Onesimus, what love Paul shows for this escaped runaway slave. And again, the, the, the implication is, Philemon, please do not, do not mistreat my child. And remember, Philemon is also on a human level, spiritually speaking, Philemon is also Paul's child in a way because Paul is the one who brought the gospel to Philemon. So Onesimus is in this sense, Philemon's brother, not just brother in Christ, but even brother in terms of the man who brought them the, the gospel. Paul, Paul is making an appeal here. And in fact, that word appeal occurs twice in this passage. This is from the Greek word parakaleo. And I, I resonate with this being a lawyer. It's actually a legal argument presenting evidence. Paul is laying out godly evidence before God and before Philemon. Let me, let me give you I, could order you, I could order you to do so, but I'm not. That demonstrates a sense of forbearance by Paul. I love you, and I know that you love me too. Again, it's noting this common affection that Paul has for Philemon and for Onesimus. He says, I am old. Candidly, that seems like a play for sympathy on some level. More than that, Paul is, I am a prisoner suffering for Christ. And we know that that carries with it a sense of honor. That, again, you think about all the martyrs, all of the missionaries, all the people who have suffered, and, and just what, what a precious place in Christ that these ministers have. Paul says, Onesimus is my child. Again, noting this common love, these bonds of love that these believers have for one another. All of these things, this forbearance, this affection, this sympathy, this honor, this love, these are all reminders of godliness. Not, not even Paul in a self-serving way trying to remind him of Paul's godliness, but of trying to convey the importance of acting and responding in a godly way. Because that's exactly what Paul is hoping and praying for from Philemon. And really, we need these reminders as the church, as Christians, because sometimes our sin makes us forget. So we know here that Paul is indeed making a bold appeal. What is his appeal for? Well, this is a very short chapter, the, the letter of Philemon, so I'm not spoiling anything to tell you that Paul is appealing for Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Forgiveness is really the essence of the gospel. The gospel and its effects here are in full force. Paul is being so bold in order to encourage Philemon to forgive. Paul is being so bold here out of care and protection and concern for someone that he loves, someone vulnerable like Onesimus. You know, I've spoken critically from time to time here and in Sundays in July about certain aspects of the so-called social justice movement. But one thing we do need to remember as Christians is that Christians do need to have a heart of love and compassion for the least of these. We know this from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. More than that, elders in particular, as Paul is speaking as an apostle and an elder, elders are also commanded to protect the flock. 
And I think it's important to remember these things as we walk our Christian walks, that even though we don't want to uh, uh, give under to the excesses of certain unbiblical movements, that we also need to remember that certain principles are biblical to care for the vulnerable and the least of these. So I have a separate question here. I'm, I'm kind of relating this parakaleo, this, this appeal, this legal argument. Doesn't it kind of seem like Paul is giving Philemon a guilt trip here? I mean, that, that's kind of how it seems to me. Kind of reminds, it's, like, it's like a mother saying to a child, you know, I was in labor with, with, with you for over 48 hours. You can't even clean your room? Come on. <laughs> and, you know, when we see this, it, it might even run the risk of rubbing us the wrong way because especially here in America, it tends to violate our sense of independence. You know, a lot of times when we were young, when we were kids, mom's guilt trips uh, bugged us, oftentimes because they were true and effective, right? Because when, when someone guilt trips you, they're, they're trying to get you to do something. And, and we, we hate that sometimes here in this kind of freedom-loving United States, right? But there's some key differences here. You see, Paul is not being selfish. He's actually being selfless here. His motive is pure. His desire is to benefit Onesimus. It's actually to benefit Philemon as well, to benefit the local body, because remember, these letters were, were public letters, and to benefit unity. More than that, Paul knows that Christ is magnified if Philemon forgives Onesimus with the right motive. Paul gets no benefit from this. He, he's even paying for it all or willing to pay for it all, as we see as we skip ahead to verse 19. We'll get to that next week. So Paul is, he, he's not having an improper motive here. He's also not manipulating here. He's being very upfront and transparent, in fact, to a very bold degree, as we know from our first point. Paul's goal here is to promote godliness and a godly response in another person. So maybe instead of guilt trip, perhaps a better word would be conviction. Just like when you all or when I hear solid preaching of the word of God. Lord willing, we're convicted at points. Paul is reminding Philemon here of his calling as a Christian. He's reminding Philemon of his savior. He's reminding Philemon that, look, if, if you are a Christian, if the gospel has worked in your life, that that has impact, that that has effects on you. So this is really not a guilt trip. Now, again, there may be a sense in, in our flesh that Paul is not fighting fair here. But the word of God is the only true arbiter, the only real judge of fairness. I think at times we are far too likely here in the U.S. to be trained in the ways of cynicism. We might be inclined to doubt Paul's motive or to even criticize his actions here. Look, this might be controversial to some, but Guilt can actually be a good thing when it motivates you to go straight to the cross. It's kind of a radical concept in a way. It might even kick against your flesh. It does mine. But whenever we feel burdened down with guilt, with shame, with even just when there's sin in our life, that's when we look to Jesus and we say, Thank you, Lord for paying for it all, once and forever. That's the joy of being a Christian. 
And yes, we do need to repent. We do need to turn from the ways in which we are in sin and the ways in which we're not walking rightly. But to be driven to the cross, that is, that, that is so precious. And only we Christians can do that. At the end of the day, Paul is merely stressing gospel themes here. And he's proactively reminding Philemon about them. And that is our first point. The gospel makes you bold. Our second point is the gospel makes you useful. Let's read the second half of verse 10 through 13. Whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So previously we said that Paul was the one that was being bold. Here, Onesimus is the useful one. Remember, he, he apparently fled from the city of Colossae and went all the way to Rome where God saved him in a providential stroke where he encountered Paul and was saved under Paul's ministry. Hence this, this phrase, begotten in my imprisonment. So he was formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. This is such an interesting phrase because it's a play on words, actually. And you have to delve into the Greek a little bit. I try not to get into that too much, but it's so interesting here because it's a play on words. The w Onesimus means useful, actually. That, that is one word for useful. But there is a synonym in Greek for useful, and it is the word euchrestos. And that's the word that Paul uses here. Meanwhile, the word for Greek for useless is akrestos, also used in this passage. Now, the almost identical sound in Greek is to Christos, which is the word for Christ. So, euchristos would mean full of Christ, and akristos would mean without Christ. So, the one named useful, Onesimus, who was once useless and Christless, is now both useful and full of Christ. And it's the ancient Greek speakers would have actually found this to be very clever and quite funny. And again, it's something that might be lost on us reading it translated into the English. But really, when you think about this overall concept, about Onesimus being useful, here's the part that I really marvel at. Just to go from a rebellious escaped slave, and arguably he even uh, perhaps stole some things on his way out the door, but to go from that to then someone who becomes useful to the Apostle Paul is simply amazing. It's that radical heart change that can only be achieved by the gospel. It can only be achieved when Jesus Christ, when you have that understanding of the truth that God is perfectly holy and man, even the best human being living who has ever lived is still sinful. They've all sinned. All of us have sinned at one point in life. And so there's this gulf because God requires perfect holiness to be in his presence. It's the understanding that we're hopeless in that situation, but for the fact that Jesus Christ came down to earth from heaven, lived a perfect life on behalf of all of those who would ever repent and believe in him as Savior and Lord, and then was persecuted by sinful men, nailed up to a cross, suffered horribly, taking upon himself on that cross 
all of the sin, past, present, and future, of those who would ever believe in him. And then he was buried and raised on the third day, showing his victory over sin and death. It's that transforming gospel, that, that world-turning-upside-down gospel that transforms a person like a rebellious, theft-thieving slave into someone useful to the apostle Paul. And even though Onesimus is useful to Paul, like Paul's in prison right now, okay? So having someone useful to him is incredibly valuable. But Paul is nevertheless sending him back to Philemon. It's over a thousand difficult miles. And, And even more than that, just marvel and think about Onesimus agreed to go back, right? I mean, he, he, he is probably under a threat of death. Again, sla- slaves could be executed by their masters in Phrygia. So Onesimus is like, okay, Paul, you want me to go on a difficult sea voyage for over 1,000 miles and 120 miles inland to return to my master? And he agreed to go. This is how important reconciliation is in the body of Christ. And we know that he actually went because this letter survived and was preserved in the canon of perfect scripture. He was also bearing, as I mentioned, the letter to the Colossians. And Colossians 3.22 says this, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So you know that that must have been high in Onesimus's mind. Onesimus was returning to a possible death sentence, and yet still, he went. What a testimony that is. Again, who would ever do that? A slave voluntarily returning to his master and seeking forgiveness for running away. That is unthinkable today. It is unthinkable back then. And again, that is the transforming power of the gospel. It's incredible. So again, Paul is sending Onesimus, his very heart, who Paul wished to keep with him. Again, you see this deep and abiding love that Paul has for Onesimus. This type of love can only come from true Christians. John 13, verses 34 and 35 are very clear. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is a witness issue. You see the the deep love that Paul has for Onesimus, the deep love that Paul has for Philemon, and the deep love that Paul wants to see between even Philemon and Onesimus. What a marvel to see such transformation. This is such a clear and obvious effect of the gospel here about how the gospel transforms your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It changes you from useless to useful. Really, Onesimus' story is the story of every Christian on some level. Just how everything we did before Christ, everything we did in our own strength was, was useless, was, was even filthy rags, as the verse goes. And yet, once you're saved, now you can do work for the kingdom out of a right-motivated heart of love for God and love for Christ. That's our second point today. The gospel makes you useful. 
Our third point is the gospel makes you meek. So we have the gospel makes you bold, the gospel makes you useful, and the gospel makes you meek. Verse 14, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. This verse demonstrates this concept of meekness. The word meek here means strength under control. Everyone here now, we talked about how Paul was the one being bold, Onesimus is the one being useful. Everyone here is either meek or, being, or asked to be meek. You see Paul being meek because he has the power to compel, but instead he's appealing, he's asking Philemon. We see Onesimus, he, he has the power to run away or to refuse to return, but instead he meekly returned to seek reconciliation with Philemon. And we see Philemon here being asked to be meek. He, he has the power to execute even Philemon, but he is instead being asked to forgive, to stay his strength, to keep it under control, to not exercise it. And really, we see this, we, we, ha- we as Christians have the perfect example of meekness in the form of our Savior. Jesus was meek. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, so clear, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, or in some translations, meek. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's our example of meekness. We were even indeed called to present the gospel with meekness. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness, again some translations meekness, and reverence. Paul is exemplifying and encouraging meekness and attitude and behavior when he asks Philemon to forgive. Again, we're, we're seeing here the effects of the gospel, the transforming effect of the gospel, and how it makes you a servant of all. Now, I do want to make a quick note compared to our first point meekness is not the opposite of boldness. The opposite of boldness is timid. Meanwhile, the opposite of meek would be arrogant, I would say. This is not a contradiction. You can be both bold and meek. And indeed, our Savior Jesus was both in a perfect way. But as we see from this this, this letter of Philemon, it's far better spiritually if everyone involved is meek. So Paul is meek. I've already mentioned that. He's not lording it over Philemon. And in doing so, he's obeying 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. See also Matthew 20, verses 25 through 27. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. There's that concept again. 
The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Really, and it's not just elders here. If you look through scripture, there, there is this concept where authority figures, human authority figures are exhorted similarly. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Two verses later, Colossians 3.21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. And then a few verses later after that, Colossians 4.1, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Every human authority figure has a master in heaven. We are ultimately accountable to that master in heaven, but all of these authority figures are also called, it's not just authority that you can use willy-nilly to your own heart's content the way that you want to. There is responsibility that comes with authority. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. Now with that said, meekness does not mean being a pushover. And indeed, elders sometimes have the weighty responsibility of enacting church discipline when someone is in unrepentant sin, as we see in Matthew 18. And you see specific examples of this type of church discipline in some form all throughout the scripture. You see it in Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira voluntarily, no one was holding a gun to their head, they voluntarily said and committed to the elders, hey, we're going to give you all of the money from this property but they forsook that commitment and instead lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit and you see what happens in Acts 5. You see examples of church discipline in cases of sexual immorality, especially blatant or infamous sexual immorality, immorality in 1 Corinthians 5. You see examples of church discipline for people who are being unruly in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3. You see a warning about factious and divisive people in Titus 3.10. And all through 2 Peter chapter 2, you see warnings about false teachers and prophets. So these are all examples of cases where, yeah, of course, there is a need to be meek and gentle, but there's also a need to stand firm. You don't want to lord it over the flock as an elder, but you also hold people to account, especially when it's for the protection of others, for the least of these, as I mentioned earlier. But you see this clear example here of Paul making an appeal. He, he is being meek and not lording it over Philemon. Next, we also see that Onesimus is meek. He is humbling himself and going to reconcile as Paul implores him to do. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6 show this dynamic. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So you see Onesimus here being meek. He is subjecting himself to Paul. He humbles himself. And when you humble yourself, God gives you grace. We see that in Scripture. We also see this dynamic and the importance and priority of this dynamic in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So we see Onesimus being meek and submitting to the clear word of Scripture here in terms of the need to reconcile. A failure to reconcile will hinder you spiritually. And since we have a lot of young marrieds in here, and, and I include myself in that group and the need to understand and, and hear and really take this in, I want to highlight this is especially true that you will be hindered if you are being a heavy-handed husband. And the proof of that is in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Even your prayers to God are hindered if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way. That should be very sobering for every husband in here. It's certainly sobering for me. So Onesimus, then, we see, goes humbly to reconcile with his brother, his, his master, really, Philemon. And finally, we see that Philemon is being asked to be meek. He is indeed benefited if he is meek, if his goodness here is not compelled, as Paul could, but instead is given of his own free will. Now, in many ways, blind obedience might be easier. It might, it, it could be, it's kind of less thoughtful than processing through it. You've you got to really dig deep and, and really kind of get there. But if sometimes it can be easier to, oh, yeah, I'll just obey. I'll just obey. That's a lot of times we want the checklist. We want the list of stuff to do. But offering choice can be so much more beneficial because you have to process through it. More than that, Offering that choice, as Paul is, it creates less resentment or bitterness. Again, Paul is not lording it over here, which can lead to that. It also promotes a better reconciliation. Because, again, Philemon would be doing this willingly rather than under compulsion. So hopefully he would then be able to have a superior reconciliation with his brother Onesimus. The best motivator here is not force or coercion. Love is the best motivator. A gospel-motivated love and sanctification. And we know Philemon could be benefited again by this free will offering. We know this concept from 2 Corinthians 9-7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It is best if Philemon is willing to give up his slave willingly, to forgive his slave willingly, rather than under compulsion. And I want to say the local body is benefited here greatly as well. If Paul's reminders are weighty to he us here in the U.S., how much more so to the people that are in the honor-shame culture of the ancient world? Again, Colossae was in Phrygia, where hard treatment of slaves was very common. And Onesimus running away would have actually been a shame and an insult to his master Philemon. There would have been a public expectation of, of punishment and even dire punishment. And that public expectation is very important in these honor-shame cultures. And even for a regenerated local body, as in Colossae, the old thinking can sometimes die very hard. So Paul's reminders here are not just for Philemon, who is a godly man. This letter is to be read to the church. The reminders are for them as well. So Philemon here can model godliness and be an example of, to the entire church at Colossae. 
If he forgives, what an incredible example that is. He would receive public honor even for that example from the church. But the alternative would have been public shame and sin even. For James 2.13 says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Philemon again has this opportunity to show mercy, which is so superior. Paul is boldly reminding Philemon and the body at Colossae here not to sin in this way. And again, with these types of good examples, positive examples, the church has helped to break out of its old honor-shame way of thinking, perhaps. You know, I think about this, and there's really a compelling image in my mind's eye. I don't know how it happened, of course, because we don't have it recorded in Scripture, but wouldn't it be incredible if Onesimus were like the prodigal son? Just, Just imagine how awesome it would be if it turned out that Philemon even saw Onesimus and Tychicus approaching from afar. And what if he had actually raced to greet and embrace Onesimus, even before knowing why he was there? And meanwhile, the church could look on and rejoice with them all. That is the transforming effect of the gospel. And next week, we'll conclude our three-part series in Philemon to see how the gospel tears down barriers promotes reconciliation, not just with God, but also with men, and is the foundation ultimately for sacrificial love. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word, thankful for just the guidance, the wisdom, just the perfection of it. We thank you for the example of Philemon, who even today is still educating in us, educating us and being a good example. We pray that in those instances where we have opportunity to show mercy rather than judgment, that we would take it and that we would be seeking and promoting reconciliation as eight in all our lives. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.